Hey, this is Adam Spiegelman on Proudly Resents. We have two great interviews on the show today. One is from the biggest independent movie ever, and the other one is from the self-proclaimed worst. First, from the Blair Witch Project, we have Michael C. Williams. He talks about shooting the movie, some inside scoop about the film you've never, ever, ever heard before, and what it was like to go from a guy who moved furniture to a movie star back to a guy who moves furniture, and what he is doing now. Then we go to the opposite end of the spectrum. We talk to writer-director star Glenn Burgetts, whose latest film is called Worst Movie Ever, and this week, its opening weekend took in a whopping $11. So we have both sides of the spectrum. I'm going to make an independent film. Will it be a Blair Witch Project, or will it be Worst Movie Ever? Anyway, enjoy the show. Any comments, go to proudlyresents.com slash comments or call our hotline at 646-481-LIPO-LIPO. You are listening to Proudly Resents. Oh, reasons. I, I can't even I hear you. Well. Hi, this is Sammy Wazell, uh, Proudly Resents. The Cult Movie Podcast. The Adam Biggest Men Show. All you proudly resent listeners out there, just remember, you can't touch on hospitality. I want it. All right, go ahead, Speaks. Movie Phone just named the Blair Witch Project the number one viral movie campaign. In fact, that movie launched a thousand websites. One of the stars of the movie is with us, Michael Williams. He's not just an actor, but one of the guys who played the sound guy that kicked the map. But one of my closest friends from school, Mike Williams, thank you for being here. I'm not sure what this guy's talking about. I've never heard of this guy in my life, what? but how are you? <laughs> Adam Spiegelman, pleasure to be here. Yes, this is true. He is a good friend of mine. One of my best friends from our SUNY New Paltz days. Yes, yeah. what we remember of them. I mean, it's a remarkable story because this movie was not supposed to do any business at all, right? No, it wasn't. It was uh, actually rated by my family as the biggest waste of time I could have possibly done. When I showed them about 20 minutes of footage at Thanksgiving 1997, I was like, oh, this is what I've been working on in the woods. This is that thing I was talking about. They're like, oh, great. And we have this big meal with us. You know, we've got eight brothers and sisters and my uh, girlfriend, who's now my wife, and we all sit down and we're watching this 20 minutes of this weird footage. And they're just like, um, all right, is it time for pumpkin pie yet? Because <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> well, <how did laughs> because you... it hadn't been put together at all. It hadn't been strung together. It made no sense to them, and they didn't know what they were watching. And um, you know, they were right. It was pretty, it just looked like this odd, lousy footage of a bunch of people yelling at each other in the woods. And uh, so even at that point, I thought, yeah, but you're not getting it. You're not getting it. Wait till they put this thing together. I didn't think it would be as successful as it was ever. But uh, when we were shooting it, I thought, this is pretty cool. We're doing something pretty different here, you know? Well, you thought it would be something for your real or something you just have to show friends? I thought it would be, at best, in fact, I thought it had a good chance of being some underground cult you know, VHS tape that would go around, you know, from teenager to teenager, or college kid to college kid, and we'd get some, you know, some cool underground success, you know, not not unlike the bands at the time that were underground, you know, that kind of scene. But that's about it. I, I thought that'd be the best case scenario. When we got, I remember when we got into Sundance, thinking, like, this is it. Like, this is the pinnacle of the success this film's going to see. We're not going to get distribution or anything. Little did I, I didn't really know what that word meant at the time, but... I certainly didn't think it was getting any further than a film festival. You know, I was just excited to get into Sundance. How did I find out about it? Well, there was there was an open casting call in Backstage Magazine in New York 
I was living in Astoria, Queens at the time. I'd been there for actually only a few months, just moved in from Westchester after graduating New Paltz and working for a year, staying at home, saving some money down to Queens. And I got to be one of the first open calls I went on, so I got pretty lucky in that regard. Um, and went on this open call that said, I think the ad said, uh, um, independent film, you know, um, to be shot in a wooded location, improvisational feature film. And then I get to this audition, there's signs all over saying, you know, if you're, if you're scared of the dark and you're scared to camp and you're not an outdoors person, this is not for you. Um, and I think it was three weekends of auditioning and they just, you know, there had to be, there was hundreds of people there the first weekend. And then the next weekend there was, you know, tens of people. And then the next weekend it was just, you know, maybe 10 of us left and, uh, just kept dwindling down, you know, by the, by the, uh, droves until it became the three of us. What did you have to do for the audition? The day I got there, the first thing I did was wait online for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, three hours. I don't know what it was. It was a while. It was half, a good half a day. You finally get in and you walk in and there's a, a guy sitting across the table from you and you're thinking they're going to say, hey, how are you? You know, I'm the director of the film or I'm the casting director or whatever. And instead, you sit down in the chair and they go, you've just served uh, 10 years out of your 14-year prison sentence. Uh, you're up for parole for the first time. What would you like to say to the parole board? So immediately you're like in improvisational mode. And you don't, they don't tell you that you're going to be improving as soon as you get in the room. So you just better be ready to go, which was really cool because they probably weeded out a ton of people by doing that, you know, people who weren't ready to dive in feet first or jump in feet first. Um, that was the first part of the audition. And then you realize, okay, let's see if I'm, that, was, that was it. That was the whole first day. And then the next week when I came back, they had uh, scenarios built around three different characters. You know, one was supposedly it took place in a diner. One is, you know, you've been lost in the woods for a few days. And, and they just had us improv with different groups of actors throughout the day. And again, the week after, the same type of thing. It just kept dwindling down. People, you know, people kept getting knocked out, I guess, as, as it went. So that's basically what it was. When did you realize this movie is going to make it? It's the biggest thing ever. I think the, re the realization came to me that it was going to be I still can't believe it was the biggest thing, you know, I still, so no, no realization ever, no, there was no moment that said this thing is going to, you know, go around and make $250 million in the, you know, in, in the States theatrically and $400 million worldwide or whatever. Still don't understand how that happened, but I did know it was going to be a success and a pretty large success when uh, my wife and I went down to uh, the Angelica with a couple of people from the film and we turn the corner like the day before the film is opening and there's people in tents on the sidewalk camping out for a day, like, literally with tents and there's stick men hanging all over that these people made because they found stuff on the internet and they were just waiting for their tickets. And uh, that was just a strange thing to see, you know. That was when I realized, like, there's something going on here. There's something about this movie that's going to make a big splash because at that point it had only been decided that it was going to play it like the Angelica and, you know, five other theaters across the country. And after that weekend, it was just like, boom, it just started hitting theaters like wildfire. That was a pretty defining moment, I'd say. Did you want to tell the kids, like, the ending of the movie? Just walk up? I and... totally wanted to, like, I wanted to, like, walk up there and, and first I wanted to walk up and hear the reaction and I want to walk up and, like, scream boo and all that <laughs> stuff, you know? <laughs> they, uh, they had this marketing campaign, which was, you know, uh, at the time it was Artisan Entertainment which is now defunct, 
they basically said to us, you can't go anywhere near these theaters. We don't want anybody to see you. We want, we want to play this like it, it's actually happening. We're not telling everybody you're dead, but we don't want anybody thinking you're alive. So we were not allowed to really go. I mean, I guess I could say we weren't allowed to. They, was just, they really wanted us not to, so we played along and didn't. Well, but, uh, that yeah, that's a, that's a big thing. I think I remember that was a big thing for you because, I mean, you're a really good actor, and I've only I've known you as an actor, and it was just crazy. You couldn't tell anyone you were an actor, right? People thought you were an amateur. That was exactly right, you know. We couldn't say that we, you know, the casting director would be like, so uh, that was pretty crazy that those guys, like, threw you in the woods and then just left you there for days, huh? You know, like, no, actually, we were acting like, Okay, I'm not really sure I believe you. Well, all right, let's just do the audition. You're like, oh man, they really don't believe that I actually got cast in the film because of the way everything went down. So it was it was really kind of an odd situation. Plus, we used our own names, so that made it even more hard to sell to people that we were actually acting. You know, and eventually they came to realize that uh, I was an actor and I wasn't a very good one, which is why I'm a guidance counselor. Now, you know? so. <laughs> we'll get to what you're doing now in a second. <laughs> no, you're a great actor. Just, uh, right, well, no, maybe not. I'm, I'm, I like to uh, I like to bust on my own chops, you know. Can't do that. You know, I don't want to skip ahead, one. but Mike, do you do like no. those weekend conventions? I haven't done one in years, but in fact, we are doing the first one that the three of us will have ever done together, and that is going to be the weekend of December, I want to say, sixteenth, and that's going to be at the Indianapolis Convention Center. It's called Monster Mash, so people should definitely come out to that because it's going to be the three leads in the Blair Witch Project for the first time ever. And probably the last time, but it's due time. We've been trying to do something like that for years. But um, I did do a couple in the beginning, but I haven't done one in years and years. I don't get why you don't. Like, if I was smart enough to have any kind of success when I was younger, I mean, right now you're a guidance counselor, but on the weekends, you make 50 bucks sitting yeah. there. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't get I, I'm going to tell your wife that you're not doing it, because that's ridiculous. She's going <laughs> to yell at you when she realizes there's money on the table. No, listen, I'll be honest. I actually, a couple of years ago, I actually reached out to, like, Chiller Fest and all those, and I never heard back from these people. So I think what it was was they just really didn't want anything to do with us if it wasn't going to be the three of us, which I get, you know? Well, why, why um, is that? Will, I, I'm not sure. I think in the beginning it wasn't like that because the film was so successful. But in their minds at this point, it's old news, and they want the three actors so that they can bill it as something that's never happened before, which is what this guy is doing. His name is Charlie Hopp. And uh, seems like a good guy, and it's a good idea, and I'm, it's nice that everybody's going to be on board with it. So, you, you know, maybe if this goes well, I would do it once a year just for, for just for the heck of it. You know what? I like to do them not only, yeah, sure, you can sell, sell uh, some autographs and make some money, but it's pretty cool to hear people's stories about literally, which is one of those movies where everybody will tell you where they were when they saw it and what happened when they went home. Every single person. And I love that because it's very different experiences. It's not like, hey, I loved your movie. It was really cool. The whole experience to them made them have another experience. The next time they went camping or when their boyfriend dropped them off and they had to walk up the driveway, I mean, they all remember. It's just kind of like Jaws in that way. The first time you went to the beach after you watched Jaws, you know? And I think that's pretty awesome that we have that. And I love to hear those types of stories, so. Why are you now in Indianapolis? Uh, I think Heather's kind of ready to do it. I don't think Heather ever really wanted to do anything like this before. But I can't speak for her, so I don't really know that that's the answer. I think I was the last one to say yes to this thing because I, I thought, well, I, I've been down this road before, and one of the two of the other ones won't say yes, so it will just be a wash. And then when I said to, said to the guy, well, you know, you can get me. I'm, I'm pretty easy. I like doing these things. The other two, and he said, no, I got the other two already. I said, oh, 
sweet, then I'll do it, you know? So that was it. There's no, no, uh, no mystery behind it, really. You didn't know each other before the shooting, and then you had this weird shooting experience, but then you had another experience where the three of you became these instant celebrities. I mean, do you guys have a bond yeah. together now? We do. We do. Um, Heather and I haven't been in touch in years, you know, literally. I think the last time I spoke to her has got to be, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. Josh and I are very, very good friends. And there's nothing, there's nothing to read between Heather and I not speaking. It's just that but we're always, like, when we do see each other and we're going to see each other soon, there is a bond because we did go through this experience. And it was, like, both exciting and rewarding and amazing and also traumatic at the same time. It's like this huge event that happens in your life and you're standing next to these two people, you know, for two months at a time. And all this stuff is going on. And you're having all these same enormous emotions and, um, it, it, you know, there's so much going on that you'll, you'll always be connected in that way. There's no question about it, you know. So when we do see each other, there's a common bond there that's like, whew, we really went through this, you know. And for, I would say for, for a long time, it shapes who you are when something like that happens, you know. And you wouldn't understand it unless you went through it. Um, but to, to go through that instant sort of fame where everybody wants a piece of you, and then to be kind of left out in the cold right after that happens, is something that not too many people know about, you know. Hence my uh, severe problem with cocaine and heroin, which I've kicked. Uh, <laughs> 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 never happened, never happened. But no, you'd be the last guy. More interesting. My e Hollywood true story will be pretty boring. You, yeah, I, I could never guy, imagine Guy you. makes a movie, guy gets success, guy doesn't get cast, guy moves furniture, guy goes broke, guy goes to get a master's, guy is guidance counselor, guy is happy. The end. Yeah. <laughs> he ended up in a nice house with two beautiful kids and a loving wife. Yeah, not a bad deal. Not a bad deal. Did not drive his car into off the Pacific Coast Highway in a in a rage of glory. Nothing like that ever happened. You know, once crashed a moped when he was seventeen, but has nothing to do with the conversation. <laughs> totally unrelated. I remember we were out. We were at the restaurant in L.A. and uh, it was like yeah, last minute. The street from Scooby's, right? No, no, no. In Beverly Hills. Uh, it was just like a regular oh restaurant. Kate, uh, Kate yeah, yeah, yeah. You're thinking of... Um, were we, well, who were we with? Were we with Josh? And we were with Josh. Yeah, and like, yeah. you know, an agent. An and... agent or something? Yeah. So we God, go in there. Did you not hate those dinners? Why the hell are we going out with agents? This is ridiculous. Let's yeah, was... with people who want to drink beer and talk baseball. <laughs> you know what? I don't miss it, Speaks. I don't miss it at all. <laughs> No, I mean, it, that restaurant is epitome of L.A. because it's not that great. It's overpriced and it's celebrities yeah. and you, you could go to a better restaurant. Windows, right? Yeah, but we walked in and I know it was last minute because I think I even suggested it because I know the neighborhood and, you know, I live there. But we went in there for dinner. By the time we came out, there were like five or six guys with posters, you know, and, and T-shirts for you guys, you and Josh to sign. Oh, my God. Like, how do they know where we were? Like someone, and it was like early, it was 10 years ago, so, you know, no Twitter, if it was Twitter, it would have been ridiculous. No, it wasn't anything, nothing to do with the internet, I mean, we were barely just using cell phones, I don't know how that happened, and it wasn't like the movie just came out, right? No, and people, this like, movie it was, is going, we're going back almost, you're going 11 years, you know, it's a long time. It was ridiculous, and those guys, I think Josh didn't want to sign because he knew they were going to sell it, but if you think about it, I hope those guys sold that shit right away. Yeah, man, absolutely. <laughs> don't hold on Why to it. Why not? Like Beanie Babies, people trying to hold on to that for 20 years. It's not yeah, gonna no get... kidding, man. Um, Listen, I'm going to go to this convention. I'm going to try and sell the, the shirt that I wore, the little bag that I had. I'm selling everything. I got kids, man. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Kick. Uh, you got a monkey <laughs> in your back in the form of a boy and yeah. a girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the hat. 
This is something that I don't think anyone's ever heard. Yes. Let's talk about the hat. You, first of all, you're a fucking I have no idea whose hat it was, but I will say. No, 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 no. Bullshit. <laughs> all right, let's give back. When did I grab that? Well, that hat went from person to person, but when so, would I have swiped that hat? That's I don't I know, because it did disappear. So in college, there was this hat, which, in retrospect, not a great-looking hat. It's a beanie made out of, like, thermal underwear material, green, right? And it had yeah. a, a rooster on the front. Rim. Yeah. With uh, like a, a, a speedway rooster on the front. Some kind of a some kind of a, a logo of a almost like a, what do you like call it? Roadrunner. Like Roadrunner, yeah, yeah. And it's a company, I don't know what it is. And so that hat would go around because somebody would like pass out drunk or leave it in on a table and then somebody else would take it and then you go, Shit, yeah. I lost my hat forever and then the guy would another guy would walk in with your hat. And it went it went on like that for a few years, like Two, three years. And you'd always be like, how did you get that shack. fucking hat? Come back to the Mac Shack, yeah. Yeah. We, so it wasn't a bad-looking hat, because everybody wanted it. It was a cool hat. And back in the day, in fact, they probably wear, they wear hats like that more now than we did back then. Yeah, you see but the we beach. were way ahead of the curve with style, <laughs> because we went to Newport. Good excuse. You tell your kids <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, everyone wore flannel and a ridiculous hat. But it, it so, went around, and the hat, I remember I had it at one point. Jimmy had it, uh, Jimmy Fats. Then it was gone. Yep. Yep. And then you and I were doing a play in New York where we were both playing Jews. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> one of us faked it. Um, what was the name of the play? It was... Salome. Salome, yeah, man. That was a lot of fun. And you told me that you had you wore the hat in some ridiculous movie. Yep. And I that's just said right. to you... It was right after the movie. I was wearing that hat a lot. You wore the hat to rehearsal just to fuck with me. And then, like, two years after college ended, and then you said you wore in this movie, and I said, wouldn't it be great if this movie became a huge hit? And Johnny in Amsterdam, who moved, the big Johnny Love moved to Amsterdam, yep. if he saw the yep. hat, and you're like, no one will ever see this movie. Don't worry about it. But you know that, <laughs> you know, after the movie became a huge hit, Johnny's walking home from work in Amsterdam, and he's like, oh, that's the movie uh, Mikey's in. He walks in, he sits down, the movie starts, he stands up, he's a huge American guy in, in uh, Amsterdam, he yells, that's the, my yeah, fucking yeah. hat! <laughs> <laughs> so was it actually his hat? Because all these years no. I kind of thought it was your hat. No, I, every, everyone's claimed it. You know, I, it was yeah, my so, hat. It was I, your hat. It, well, I mean, you actually purchased the hat. No, right? I don't know where it came from, I'll be honest. But but it was definitely yours, I would think, right? <laughs> it was. Now, I remember, like, I, I, I have vivid memories of Joey wearing that hat. Modica wearing a hat, although Modica would have gotten it taken off his head as soon as he put it on. <laughs> yes. Sorry, showing you, but that was always the way it was. So you you yeah. showed off to me at this rehearsal that you had the hat and you wore it in this movie. Then what happened to the hat? The mystery of the hat is just that. The movie is over. I have the bag. I have the flannel. I've got everything. I'm not thinking about saving any of this stuff because it's, nothing's going to happen with this movie is what I'm thinking. And I have no idea whatever became of the hat. And the problem that became of the hat was that when the movie comes out and hits all these theaters, the company that designed that logo for that hat starts to sue Haxon Films for letting me wear that hat. So Haxon Films called me, and two years after we shot the movie, 1999, this movie comes out, and three months after it comes out, they call me, like, hey, Mike, we need that hat back. I'm like, I don't know. I left that hat in Maryland. I couldn't, I had never seen that hat. Since you guys got to have that hat. So that hat literally disappears. I think there's somewhere in the woods of Maryland is a witch running around with that hat. Isn't that the hat ending, is wasn't they going to, and then this is maybe a spoiler if you haven't seen the movie, but they were going to reshoot the ending with you, but they couldn't because they couldn't match it. 
Cause you no, they have... did shoot the ending with me, but they they had to they had to try and attempt to match it. And what they did was they made it. They recreated the hat, but they just they they got rid of the logo on the hat and they took that logo off the hat because I didn't wear the hat through the whole movie, but it definitely showed up a couple of times. And I think they wanted to try and like replace the scenes altogether. I think ultimately they just paid them some money and said, "Sorry, we used your logo." And then they tried to reshoot the ending, which didn't work anyway. In fact, the ending was ridiculous. That was another artist to do another ending. So we went down to Maryland, and they, 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 they set up literally a crucifix of the famous Blair Witch Stickman, a ginormous one, and they stood it in the corner of the basement, and they had me crucified on the uh, Blair Witch Stickman with blood all over me. That was one version of their ending, and we shot it. It was ridiculous. It was funny, and we laughed the whole way through because we knew it sucked. And then they had one where I was, uh, levitating in the corner, you know, like floating, because people said it looked like I was floating. I mean, all this ridiculous stuff that we went down and, you know, they paid us a bunch of money and we all left them all weekend and ate meals and had fun. And I'll tell you what, the, the, the group of people that made this movie is just awesome. Some still some of my best friends and, and just great guys, you know. In fact, I'll do a little plug. They just finished up a, a film called Lovely Molly that just did very well at the Toronto International Film Festival. And, uh, I'm sure it's going to be huge, and I'm psyched for uh, Ed Sanchez, who directed it, and Greg Hale and Robin Cowley, who produced it, and just a good bunch of people, you know? You did another movie with them uh, a couple years ago, right? An alien movie? I, you know, I, I was uh, pretty fortunate, because I really enjoyed working with both uh, Ed Sanchez and Dan Myrick, the two co-directors. And the first, um, Ed Sanchez, the first movie after Blair he did was a film called Altered, which was a reverse alien abduction film you can check out on Netflix or whatever, but that was a great one. I loved doing that, and I played a redneck named Otis. So I worked on his sophomore film, and then Dan Myrick hired me to work on his sophomore film um, called The Objective, and we shot that out in Morocco. And again, you can Netflix that, too. That's a pretty cool flick. A little supernatural, weird stuff going on in the war in Afghanistan. I played a special uh, forces soldier named uh, Ski. Do your cool. kids... I mean, your kids are young. They're six and eight, but did they, have they seen the movie or do they know about this previous life? They do know about it. They obviously haven't seen the movie and probably went for quite a while because every other word is the f -bomb. But they've seen me on like, because I, you know, I continued to act professionally until they were, really up until just a couple of years ago. The last thing I did was an episode of SVU and they saw me on that and they were like, well, that's pretty weird. Why is Daddy on TV? Like, it just <laughs> it made sense to them because they knew I was an actor but they didn't really know what it meant in the grand scheme of things. Um, which, Basically, all it meant was that we were poor and needed food. So. <laughs> that needed a master's. <laughs> hey, Mike, thanks a yeah. lot for doing this. You got it, man. I'm psyched. It's good to, uh, good to talk about it with an old friend. That's for sure, brother. Yeah, yeah. So they can go. Everyone, people can go see you in December. In what's the name of the convention again? Yeah, Monster Mash. Uh, Google Monster Mash. I'm not a website, but it's uh, Indianapolis in the middle of December. Come out, come one, come all. Me, Josh, and Heather will be there. And I uh, hope you can uh, make it out. It's going to be a great festival. Thanks, man. I'll give you a call later on. All right. Thanks, dude. Hey. Hey, I just want to take a quick second to talk about ProudlyResents.com. Every Monday we have a new feature called Three of the Week. Pick three podcasts, new suggestions, just something to try out for the week. That's all. Try it out. See what you like.
Also, if you're a podcaster, go to our website. There's a little box on the side that says Independent Podcast Alliance. Click on it. It'll bring you right there. Next week, Nico and I are going to challenge. We're challenging each other. Who has the worst TV, America or Britain? She's picked the top five worst shows in Britain in the last few years, and I've picked my top worst five of American shows. USA. So come vote on your favorite. We're going to talk about worst movie ever, and you can see their trailer for the movie on our website, proudlyresents.com. Watch the trailer. You'll understand exactly why this film is so great. This is Proudly Resents. I'm Adam Spiegelman, proudlyresents.com. In Hollywood, the opening weekend of any movie is the most important. Luckily for our guest, he lives in Denver. His latest film was made a whopping $11 in his opening weekend. Maybe it was the title, which was Worst Movie Ever. Well, he's lived to tell us about it. Please welcome director, professor, motivational speaker, Glenn Burgetts. Thanks, Glenn, for doing the show. Oh, you're welcome, Adam. I appreciate you having me on. The movie's worst movie ever. What was the inspiration? Well, uh, for years, I, you know, I'm an avid film watcher. And for years, I'd notice films where, you know, something would happen, whether it's a line of dialogue or a character or a plot twist. And I'd see it and say to myself, my gosh, if there was ever a film made called The Worst Movie Ever, that piece of dialogue or that character would fit perfectly in it. And in the summer of 2010, uh, I guess it was what uh, late July, early August, somewhere in there, uh, I was watching a film, and I said that line to myself again. I thought, you know, I've said that line so many times. I'm going to see if I can make the worst movie ever and put in as much awful dialogue, as many bad plot twists, and moronic characters as I possibly can. You and another guy about your age with a huge mustache play uh, teenagers. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what was well, that based actually, on? Well, uh, you know, that was part of uh, the worst movie ever with bad casting. And you know, I was, what, 43 at the time we shot, playing a teenager. And Stuart Goldstein played my teenage buddy in the film. And Stewie was, I believe, 63 or 64 at the time of the shooting. So, yeah, we were a couple of guys playing teens with a combined age well over 100 years. And you know, part of it was, uh, you know, just the bad casting aspect of making a bad film. What is the plot, if you can say there is one? <laughs> I guess if you have to give it a plot, it's uh, Boltar, the robot alien, comes down to Earth, starts wreaking havoc, and this crew of people band together to try to stop Boltar. Yeah, we actually shot all the outside scenes uh, on a Saturday outside of Eileen Barker's house. Eileen plays Ladulia in the film. And then the next day, uh, we shot all the inside scenes at Jonathan Jorgensen's house, and he played Santa Claus in the film. So, yes, very much uh, limited uh, locations, and yeah, we shot very quickly with that. Right. Santa Claus is kind of like the Greek chorus of the movie. <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, am I giving you too much credit by saying that? Uh, oh, yeah, you're giving me way too much credit. Uh, <laughs> for the most part, you know... Uh, you know, I pictured people saying, you know, everyone's at various points in the film screaming out, no, when something bad happens. And uh, then I thought, well, gee, maybe we could have, you know, someone off the wall scream out, no, out of the blue. I thought, well, Santa Claus. And then I thought, well, wait a second. We have Santa Claus always says, ho, ho, ho. So we could have Santa Claus say, no, no, no. And so, yeah, it just kind of popped into my head. There was 
nothing Greek or Shakespearean or anything about it. It was just uh, what I thought would be a nice bad touch to the film. Not only did you just yell no, but you looked up no matter what. In your case, you need to look up, but then everyone just looked up and yelled no for like way too long. <laughs> oh, yeah, and, and that scene, uh, I think you're referencing, uh, yeah, they're supposed to be looking up, uh, supposedly seeing a spaceship that Boltar came down, uh, was shot down from onto Earth, and uh, yes, this spaceship uh, floating in the sky just fills everyone with such dread, they have to scream out no. <laughs> You also you casted two kids as adult roles. Oh uh, yeah! I love that kid. He's got a, a sifter of uh, a high C or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, with Kool Aid, we right. had for him. And was that an issue? Because there's a whole subplot of him getting her pregnant. Was that just a ridiculous moment? Did anyone give a care? To, you know about that? Uh, yeah, because actually. Uh, Eileen Barker in the film, I knew she had a son who had helped us out uh, in a sketch that we shot for our sketch comedy show pilot, which is currently being edited. And uh, so I said to Eileen, I said, oh, you know, uh, his name's Huey. Would Huey be interested, you know, or would you mind Huey playing this role? And Eileen read the role and she thought, you know, this might be a little too risque for him because Huey was, I think, nine at the time. And uh, so I had to look around for someone, and Hayden, who played the 14-year-old cougar in the film, she suggested Bryce, uh, Bryce Foster, who ended up playing the role. And because Bryce has this really angelic look, he just looks like, you know, such a young, fresh-faced lad, but he was actually, what, 13 at the time we shot. And, uh, but he had this look that made him look even younger. And so him being 13, he and his, you know, his parents had no problem with him you know, talking about pregnancies and condoms and things like that. So, yeah, there was a little bit of an issue, but we just cast a little older character to play the 10-year-old. It works perfectly. It's really bizarre and funny. Oh, well, thanks. Sometimes I would laugh at a scene because you did something ridiculous, but it's because you intentionally did it because it's the worst movie ever. I mean, were you afraid of losing the humor and the fact that you're doing it, you're intentionally making this mistake? Yeah, that, that was a... In a way, the film was very liberating because, hey, we're making the worst movie ever. If we botch a line or something, don't worry about it. Uh, the other side of that coin, though, was that we're calling this the worst movie ever, so it better be so bloody awful it's funny. And so there was that certain amount of pressure like, you know, is this just dumb or is this dumb and funny at the same time? And uh, so... Yeah, at times there was a little bit of angst and worry, like, you know, is this, are we pulling this off, or, you know, are we going what, are attaining what we're going for here, like actually making it so bad it's humorous, or is this just bad? But for the most part, you know, we just went with our gut instincts. If it seemed like it was working, we went with it. Uh, you know, cast and crew members would suggest things here and there, and, yeah, for the most part, it seems like we pulled it off pretty well. Yeah, it was a very funny movie. Now, it got distribution. Was this your first movie that got distribution? Uh, my previous film uh, that I had a distribution deal for was To Die is Hard, and we got that into a couple of theaters here in the U.S., and uh, unfortunately, the distribution company that had it just went out of business <laughs> about a month and a half ago or so, so I have the rights back to that, so... I've had a couple of distribution companies ask to see it, and I'm waiting to see if they want to take it on for distribution. So the worst movie ever is our second film. We've gotten a deal for and gotten it out there to a few people. 
Well, a few. I mean, the opening week, the way I found it was I was just looking at Box Office Mojo, and on the way bottom was your <laughs> film at $11. How is that even possible, $11? Well, what happened was uh, I happened to be in the Midwest uh, attending a film festival uh, that the worst movie ever was in in Van Wert, Ohio, and we had a screening for To Die is Hard in Fort Wayne, Indiana, at one, of, one of the theaters that showed it. And I got word from the Sunset Five out in L.A. that they wanted to show the film as a midnight movie on the, the upcoming Friday and Saturday nights. And this was on a Sunday, and it was late on Sunday. I got the email. I was going to be traveling all day Monday, getting back to Denver. So I was only able to really start letting people know it was going to screen on Tuesday, just three days before it was hitting the theater. And... So I, you know, I know a couple people out in L.A., basically former cast members who had been here in Denver when I worked with them and had moved out there. And uh, so I sent them emails, and the one guy was out of town, the other guy was on a film shoot. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, it's L.A. You know, uh, people uh, put it up on the marquee, and people say, what the heck is that? So, you know, 100 people walk in each night anyway. won't be huge crowds, but enough to get us going. And I thought, well, let's see, with my half of the box office take, I might make a couple thousand dollars here. Well, what ended up happening was, because I didn't have time to do any advertising, and the theater didn't have any time to do any advertising, and I found out they ended up, since it was just showing at midnight each night, they didn't worry about putting it on the marquee either, that, uh, what, the first night no one showed up, and the second night one person happened to walk in, I guess, just looking for something to do, and plopped his $11 down and went in to watch it. So that's how we managed to get one person in uh, in our opening weekend. It's like statistically, if you put up a movie on a screen and air it two nights in a row at midnight, one guy will show up. <laughs> I guess the, what, that's what the mathematics will tell us anyway. Right, and who's the one guy who's out at midnight? Like, did he cause a crime and he just needed an alibi? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. We, we've, we've tried to track down. we put out some feelers to try to find out who that person was. We checked with the Sunset Five, and a couple of people who were working that night say it, it wasn't one of their regulars, anyone they recognized. And, of course, you know, they weren't even thinking to make a mental note of the person going in. Uh, so we have no idea who it is. A couple people... Uh, right after the incident, a few things popped up on the Internet. You know, who was the one person who was there? And we received four or five emails from people saying, oh, I was the one there and things like that. But, you know, they had no proof to back it up. So to, to this day, we're still wondering who that one viewer was who got us off to our terrific start. Well, if you're out there, let us know. If you have the golden and only ticket, we should find out. Now, are they going to do another screening out here? Are they going to give you a do-over? Uh, well, we'll see here. Uh, we're trying to pick up some momentum, uh, you know, with the film in other parts of the country. Uh, you know, we've had a couple screenings in Virginia, and the turnouts haven't been great, but the general manager of the place said those who have come have had a, such a great time that they're going to show us again after the first of the year. And we have, we've had a screening here in Denver with another one coming up because they were happy with the turnout. Again, it wasn't great, but it was a Monday night, and he said they got in more people than they normally do on a Monday night, so they're showing us next Saturday. We're getting shown tomorrow night in Scotland, so we're making our European debut. And hopefully, you know, we just keep getting a few more fans here and there, get the ball rolling. Because I know uh, when I spoke with the people at the Sunset Five in L.A., 
uh, they said when they first started showing the room, there were plenty of screenings. There were only two or three or four people, but, you know, they kept it, kept showing it, and the crowds eventually started growing. So, you know, we just figure we pick up a couple fans every day one way or another. We'll get there eventually. We would love to do a screening out here in L.A., so we'll try to make yeah. that happen. That would be great. Well, and how can people see the movie now if they wanted to see it after hearing your interview? Yeah, well, we set up a website, worst-movie.com, and you can download it for $5 there as long as you have a PayPal account. Uh, so that's one way that you can see it. If you want a DVD, uh, I actually do uh, some speaking engagements. I have a website, glennspeaks.com, uh, where people can go and buy DVDs of any of our films because uh, we've done some other feature films that we haven't gotten uh, distribution deals for, but they're decent enough films. Uh, so, yeah, they can go to those website, or to that website and get those films. If you download it, it's 5 bucks. To buy a DVD is $10, I believe it is. Uh, you speak a lot about making uh, movies for under 200000 Is that... Uh, for under 2000 not 200000 <laughs> What is that? How is that possible? Uh, well, like with the worst movie ever, I spent $1,075 to make it. Uh, you know, I have found, as an independent filmmaker, I've been making films for five years now, that I mean, with the crew, with the worst movie ever, was basically the director of photography, Eric Lassie, he had the camera, and then John Miller held the boom microphone. And that was our crew. And, uh, you know, pay them. I mean, the people around here are so great. I've worked with most of them over and over. I basically pay them gas money so they can get to and from the shoot, give them, you know, 40 bucks or so, and uh, provide them with a little bit of food that I get at a dollar store to keep the cost down. And, yeah, the cast members, again, you know, give them 40 bucks or so for gas money. I always make sure I spend a lot of time scheduling a shoot so no one has to be on shoot all day other than a couple cast or crew members. And so, yeah, people don't mind, you know, coming out for one or two days for four hours, shoot their scenes and get on their way. And like that, hopefully something good happens with the film. Yeah, because we don't, uh, you know, I've talked to some independent, other independent filmmakers and, you know, the one guy said, well, we typically get every shot. We shoot it anywhere from 20 to 25 times to make sure we have coverage. And, of course, that's going to take a lot of time and make your shoot go longer, and people need more food, and you have to pay them more to come on set. And uh, with the worst movie ever, I don't know, they're probably a, <laughs> a quarter of the scenes we shot once. And, you know, I would turn to Eric, the director of photography, say, Eric, how'd that look to the camera? He'd say, it looked pretty good. I say, well, it's good to my naked eye. Let's move on to the next scene. And uh, so, yeah, that helps keep costs down as well. Yeah, you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. So people should check out your website. It's uh, Glenn Speaks. And Worst-movie.com. And uh, what is it like being the only Jew in Denver? Yeah, actually, I'm not Jewish. Oh. <laughs> uh, I think I have a little, well, maybe a little bit back in there somewhere. Uh, but... Yes, I wouldn't be the only one, though. I'm a professor also at Metro State, so I've had plenty of Jewish students in my classes, so I'm sure it wouldn't be any big deal. <laughs> I saw your name. I was like, wow, it's him. He's the one. <laughs> <laughs> I Hopefully I didn't disappoint you too much with that. <laughs> well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to air this interview now. Um, no, thank you very much, Glenn, and uh, hopefully we'll do a, an L.A. screening of your movie. Yeah, anything you can set up, I'd be happy to go out there and meet people and help you get it going. Thanks so much, Adam. Great, man. Have a good day. Thank you.
Adam, that, we're, we're out of time for this interview.